You're listening to the Sill Podcast, perspectives on art and technology with Peter Noche and Harry Posner. Episode 22, A Verse to Verse, Poetry and the Digital Self. Harry, you brought a poem with you today, which I think is a great way to kick off this podcast. What's the name of that poem? <laughs> the name of the poem is No Stars, The Wind Out of the North, and it's by a Canadian poet by the name of Patrick Lane. I'm going to rustle paper because yeah, yeah, I've got sure. paper in front of me. His name is Patrick Lane, and he's a Governor General Award winning poet. The book of poetry he wrote was called Washita. The blade found its way in the wood, my young body bringing the splitting axe down, the weight breaking the rounds of fur, a kind of longing, the groan of the old wood, the fallen tree remembering its childhood below the cliff a hundred years ago, and winter hard around me. Each season has its song, the chainsaws scream, the wedge under the sledge, breaking through the knots where the limbs once grew, the hardness hidden in the heart. Ah, long ago, the thin light from the shed burning the snow, the split wood piling up around me, my young wife at the window folding diapers, her hot tears on the worn cotton, a child weeping, and the arc of the swing, my blade a bright star burying itself in wood. Powerful! And you chose this poem, why? Because reading his other poetry, it's all very much like this. It's very nature-based. It's gritty. It's on the ground. And there's an authenticity to his experience that he's sharing with us that we can't fail to have a relationship with. He draws us into that moment of him chopping wood. He gives us that feeling of the longing of the wood for its own childhood, mm-hmm. that wood has a feeling. And then at the very end, there's a sudden shift to his wife in the window, folding diapers, but she's crying. So there's a sadness that she's echoing of the sadness of the wood that is being chopped. You mentioned the word relationship, how this can impact relationships, improve relationships versus some of the challenges that we're encountering now with modern technology that is in many ways hacking at relationships or diminishing them in many ways. I'm making the case for the relevance of poetry in the digital age. Everything we live with day to day, all the technology, all the simulations, Mm -hmm. it has relevance because it's an antidote to the toxic nature of the world we live in. I just talked about that poem, for example. My relationship to that poem is a very intimate, very warm, very open approach to Mm -hmm. thinking about the words and what the poet had in mind. There's a relationship between the reader and the writer here. Mm -hmm. If we did that with each other as human beings, if we treated our friend and anyone we meet as a kind of poem interesting, that, that in themselves points at the meaning of his existence, and if only we're open enough to listen to them deeply and see them for who they really are and have that real authentic relationship, we would grow absolutely right more deeply into our own lives. Even if you got nothing else out of it other than a pause, and a pause is often all we need to rethink something. Yeah. or to appreciate something, because sometimes we're too quick 
Yeah, wisdom doesn't come from rushing through. Wisdom comes from stopping, getting perspective mm-hmm. on things, taking a moment, taking a breath, centering oneself in one's existence and saying, where am I? Who am I now? Obviously, I'm not into poetry in the same way that you are. I've always had an appreciation for good writers in general. I pursued more the book end of things than I did the poetic side, mm-hmm. although I can see that there's poetry in writing as well. But it's a little less, for lack of a better term, artsy than poetry, or at least it seems that way. What seems less artsy? Regular writing versus poetry in itself. Yeah, you're right in the sense that the poet is taking the palette of language Mm -hmm. and mixing colors in different ways. Yes, a much wider palette. Yeah, than typical prose writers would. Because they're trying to get at something which is beneath language in a way, Mm -hmm. pre-rational, the imagination. Almost something that can't be expressed with words, but you have to figure out a way to do it with words. Yeah, the ineffable, as I love that word, the ineffable, getting at the unspeakable. Easy for you to say. (laughs) And so poets in the 20th century began to mess with language and play Mm -hmm. with it and kind of break apart the relationship between words and meaning, Mm -hmm. cut the tether. You did the literary festival, and you're doing a lot of similar things in your position as Poet Laureate. For me, attending these events, even if I got absolutely zero out of the poetry itself or the actual recitals, just being in that room and being quiet and listening to one person speak while people are appreciatively listening, Mm -hmm. there's a sense of quiet, calm, and peace that is worth Yeah, and more than that, you're also there listening to the oohs and ahs and grunts and coughs and soft farting of your neighbors in the audience (laughs) who are hard there. Some of them may be falling. We're going to give them the benefit of the doubt, soft farting. (laughs) Maybe some of them are falling asleep. Some of them are bored. But it's a total experience. It's real. It's like going to Carnegie Hall and listening to Beethoven's Fifth Symphony Mm -hmm. as compared to sitting in your living room, putting on a CD where everything's been cleaned up to create a sound. In the middle of a crescendo, somebody coughs. Yeah, exactly. And that's kind of edited out Mm -hmm. of the mix. It's cleaned up. It's not as authentic as actually being there. The poet might make a mistake, Mm -hmm. mix up the words. Well, people always love the juggler who drops one. Sure. I don't. I get embarrassed for them, (laughs) frankly. (laughs) I'm nervous for them myself. Yeah, so authenticity, the opposite of simulated living, pointing at meaning as poetry does, all of these things help to kind of uh, free our imaginations Recently, you introduced me to Mary Oliver, one of your favorite poets. Yeah. It's really interesting the way she poses or the way she creates her poetry, which is kind of the opposite of the way or seemingly living these days. She's very much connected to nature. She lives in nature, and her poems often have her out in nature, in a forest, in a garden. She says to create a sacred space where we can feel connected to the entire universe, where we can take a breath lose ourselves in the beauty and wonder of existence, and come away rejuvenated from the experience. Right. So that's what being in nature can do, and that's what a great poem can do as well. It it can put you in that mood, in that frame of mind, without you actually being there, necessarily. Mm -hmm. And you also suggested sometimes to give significance to things that we don't give significance to. In other words, you made reference to a sparrow 
Oh, there goes a sparrow as if it's less important than an oriole or a blue jay. Yeah, I've noticed that. You know, people say, oh, you know, they're looking for these fabulous birds. And they go, what's that? Is that a, is that a, oh, no, it's just a sparrow. And I think, just a sparrow? It's as sacred and alive and as interesting as any other living thing. Why would you discount it because it's not as colorful, say, Mm -hmm. as a Baltimore Oriole? Which is a lot of what we do today with communications and multimedia. We dismiss a lot of things. Yeah, if it's not flashy enough, if it doesn't get our attention quickly and powerfully, if it's not in our face, which poetry isn't typically, we ignore it. Now, lately we have slam poetry Spoken word poetry, which is more in your face. It's really kind of there to get your attention and to make some kind of point about the way we live, about life uh, and about the issues that society faces. So it's very relevant on the ground type of poetry, very much like rap and hip hop. It's literary activism. You could maybe put it that way. Mm -hmm. So it's relevant. Think about uh, in the 1950s, Lawrence Ferlinghetti who was one of the commanders of the Beat Poetry Generation, he uh, started up a bookstore and a publishing house called City Lights in San Francisco. Mm-hmm. And he published Ginsburg's um, Howl? Howl, this sort of anthem, this rant that had sexual undertones of homosexuality and talking about jazz and the state of America. And um, somewhere along the line, Someone said, ooh, this is too much. This is, this is ooh, outrageous. And they got charged with publishing obscene materials, went to trial, and they were acquitted, ultimately. In other words, they're saying that this is a work of art. And in a work of art, you can bring things that are out of the box, that are outrageous, that push at the edges of normal, and mm-hmm. it's fine. It's okay. So I'm going to share a bit of Howl with you, uh, Allen Ginsberg's Howl. Just to give you a sense for what people were reacting to when it first came out, I'm going to give you just the first, the opening of Howell here. Mm. I saw the best minds of my generation destroyed by madness, starving, hysterical, naked, dragging themselves through the Negro streets at dawn, looking for an angry fix. Angel-headed hipsters burning for the ancient heavenly connection to the starry dynamo in the machinery of night who poverty and tatters and hollow-eyed and high sat up smoking in the supernatural darkness of cold-water flats floating across the tops of cities contemplating jazz, who bared their brains to heaven under the L and saw Mohammedan angels staggering on tenement roofs illuminated, who passed through universities with radiant cool eyes hallucinating Arkansas, and Blake light tragedy among the scholars of war, who were expelled from the academies for crazy and publishing obscene odes on the windows of the skull, who cowered in unshaven rooms in underwear, burning their money in wastebaskets and listening to the terror through the wall, who got busted in their pubic beards returning through Laredo with a belt of marijuana for New York, who ate fire in paint hotels or drank turpentine in Paradise Alley death, or purgatoried their torsos night after night with dreams, with drugs, with waking nightmares, alcohol and cock and endless balls. And on and on it goes, you know, it's a powerful, unencumbered voice. And Howell remains an anthem to this day because of that power and that freedom to express what he was feeling at that time in 1955. Yeah, it's still relevant today, isn't it? Totally relevant today. So, and that has stayed with us for 
60 years now, more than mm -hmm. 60 years, where now people were, come back to it. In that discussion, you were also including the comedy of Lenny Bruce. Sure. Lenny Bruce, uh, George Carlin, these people who pushed at the boundaries of language, of normalcy, to point at meaning and our existence in a deeper way. Mm -hmm. Howell is an anthem to this day for many people who regard freedom of speech as a very, very important And not just thing. freedom of speech. It's also a wake-up people, don't you think? Yeah. They're not just simply emphasizing or giving perspective. They're also kind of shaking you up a little bit in the sense that you become numb to things and you're not paying attention. Yeah, especially modern poetry. Poetry going back was a little bit more subtle than that. It wasn't so much In so your face. social cheerleading, etc. It was more love poetry and nature poetry, romantic poetry, classical stuff. And then in the modern age, in the 20th century, followed along the same lines in a way as art, cubism and all of those modernizing uh, influences that changed the way art was given to us in painting mm -hmm. and cinema, etc. Well, writers came along like E.E. E. Cummings, like Gertrude Stein, who pushed at the boundaries of literary normalcy and changed the way we think about language. Mm -hmm. So the point of poetry, part of it, is to help rejuvenate language. Language has fallen into a state of disrepair, of apathy, of a flaccid muscle. Abbreviations. Abbreviations. Short forms. Yeah, LOL, you know, mm -hmm. uh, stuff like that. Everything's abbreviated. Mm -hmm. and We're actually losing the skill because of it. Losing the skill of language, of, of mm -hmm. communicating in deeper ways. Like mm -hmm. these abbreviations are great for superficial communication. Mm -hmm. Surface communication has to be fast and quick. LOL is quicker than laugh out loud. Mm -hmm. And there's a function of the digital world we live in. We've created that to Yeah, make. whereas before we were actually standing in front of each other and actually laughing. Out loud. <laughs> <laughs> like now. <laughs> yeah. No, and that's, uh, that's a great segue to what I wanted to get into a little bit was to really compare it to the so-called technical world that we live in and also the generational challenges that it's creating. Because myself, being a recent grandparent, I see already, uh, and I'm actually, I'm not typical because I'm fairly well versed in technology, but many of my peers are not and have no desire to be at this moment. And the gap for them and their grandchildren, for example, is increasing simply because they're living in a very, very different world. And, you know, they're not that familiar with Skype or Instagram or Facebook. Not that it really matters in the end, but that's what's being utilized now. Yeah. And that gap is widening. Mm -hmm. And personally, I'm pleased that poetry and other forms of art are being reintroduced or being propagated by certain people because I think that it's important to keep a balance of both things. Yeah, when you think about the world as older men that we are, the world is rushing forward at top speed, much of it thanks to technological developments. Faster than most of us are able to keep up yeah, with. Yeah, if technology didn't evolve as quickly as it does, mm -hmm. the world wouldn't seem to be moving quite as quickly as it does. True. But it, but mm -hmm. it is. And, you know, we spend our times running for the bus, trying to catch up, hoping not to be left behind, pushed to the edges mm -hmm. of society. Because if you're not keeping up, you're not in it. So here you are teaching seniors how to work with technology so as to stay as current as possible. Yes. In order to stay connected to their lives, meaning their children and their grandchildren's lives. Relationships. Relationships. 
So the whole point I'm making about poetry, too, is that it's an authentic form of relationship between the writer and the reader. Our relationships these days, many of them are simulated. You know, I have a million friends on Facebook. Mm-hmm. What does actual, that mean? Yeah, you might have actually three friends and the other 997 are, are, are facsimiles. They? Yeah. They're two-dimensional screen uploads. That's what they are. And we're calling them friends. It's a simulation of a friend. In our world, in our world, we would barely label that an acquaintance, let alone a friend. Exactly. Getting back to language again and and being playful with language, I'm going to Mm. read you another poem here. Sure. Uh, This is a poem by my favorite poet as I grew up. He really inspired me to play with language and to tease it apart from meaning. The American poet E.E. Cummings. Mm -hmm. I'm going to try to read this. It's not that easy to read sometimes. But here we go. Uh, He as old as who staggering up some street full of people lurches vividly from tie and desperately mm, to tie Mm, shrugging as if to say, but for Christ's sake, how can I sell drunk if I heat pencils? Have another drink, Harry. <laughs> <laughs> right? By the way he breaks language and breaks the rules, he gives us a drunk walking down the street. Yeah. And it's so there in the language that it's very, very cool. So I really... True, learned, I enjoyed that. Yeah. yeah, I learned a lot from him in the way he played with language. He breaks with grammar, he splits words up, he schmunches them together into these long-legged beasts that crawl across the page. Kind uh, of freed you up, right? Freed me up. I think in another podcast, I talked about a friend who freed me up in terms of how to dance yeah. freely and to throw my arms Loose around. Loose as a goose. <laughs> goose as a goose. goose I, I, I'm still laughing getting the imagery of that. <laughs> yeah, but it's the same thing with writing. These writers freed me up to say, oh, if they can do that, why can't I play with that? So my earlier writings would almost echo E.E. Uh-huh. Uh, e. Cummings's poetry. And you do that as a young artist. You copy and you echo and you try stuff that you really like from another artist. And, and he kind of gives you a license to get crazy, baby, if that's what you crazy, feel like doing. Get crazy, baby. Yeah. And, uh, and then you find your own voice, mm-hmm. is whatever that is. So, yeah, thanks to these poets, uh, language now becomes a more fluid, playful dance. Not so much a hard encrusted nugget trapped in the world of meaning. Exactly. It loosens up. Brings you to another place in time and space. Not only that, but physically, I think it can create new synapses in the brain. Mm. The whole world of neuroplasticity is really uh, coming to the fore these days in terms of how music of certain kinds, how words of certain kinds, pictures can actually change the synapse, the, the neural network configurations in the brain. There are health benefits and learning benefits. Exactly. And so these poems that break with tradition, that give you these odd, uh, surreal experiences in reading them, are actually creating synapses in the brain. As you struggle with the poem, as you struggle with these things, the brain is reconfiguring to understand more deeply Mm -hmm. these concepts and these ideas that play with meaning and point at meaning. Uh, There's another poem I'd like to read you, if you'll bear with me. Sure. And this is uh, a piece from Mary Oliver's the Leaf and the Cloud. Okay. Uh, I can't tell you how much I love that book of poetry, that extended poem that she wrote. But let me read this segment from The Leaf and the Cloud, which is 
stunning to me. It goes, What secrets fly out of the earth when I push the shovel edge, when I heave the dirt open? And if there are no secrets, what is that smell, that sweetness rising? What is my name? Oh, what is my name that I may offer it back to the beautiful world? Have I walked long enough where the sea breaks raspingly all day and all night upon the pale sand? Have I admired sufficiently the little hurricane of the hummingbird, the heavy thumb of the blackberry, the falling star? Count the roses, red and fluttering. Count the roses, wrinkled and salt each with its yellow lint at the center, each with its honey pooled and ready. Do you have a question that can't be answered? Do the stars frighten you by their heaviness and their endless number? Does it bother you that mercy is so difficult to understand? For some souls, it's easy. They lie down on the sand and are soon asleep. For others, the mind shivers in its glacial palace and won't come. Yes, the mind takes a long time is otherwise occupied than by happiness and deep breathing. Now in the distance some bird is singing, and now I have gathered six or seven deep red half-opened cups of petals between my hands, and now I have put my face against them, and now I am moving my face back and forth slowly against them. The body is not much more than two feet and a tongue. Come to me, says the blue sky, and say the word. And finally, even the mind comes running like a wild thing and lies down in the sand. Eternity is not later or in any unfindable place. Roses, 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 roses. Beautiful. Yeah, it's stunning. She takes eternity and brings it down into a rose that is right in front of you. She's saying that eternity is in the details, is in the moment that we're awake to ourselves in relationship to the world like a rose in front of us. And your sincerity for this is obvious to me. I can see from the way you read and talk about it that it sinks deep for you. I was on the subway in Toronto reading this thing, getting teary-eyed. Uh, no, you I know, believe it. I couldn't it moved believe. you. It moved you. Oh, I couldn't believe how powerfully evocative and beautiful the writing was because it touched something deep in me. There was a relationship that was immediately there between me and, and the writer. It also presents an interesting dichotomy with the way many people view modern living, this polarization that occurs in our day-to-day -day life uh, where institutions are attempting to kind of subdue or break us apart. Yeah. Think about 1984, George Orwell. Mm -hmm. War is peace. It's this playing with words and the dumbing down of language, the foreshortening of language, the LOL, mm -hmm. that is used to control, essentially, the population or used to sell the population on something, whether it's a political idea or mm -hmm. a product from Amazon. Yes. It, it's all used. Language has been put in the service of the commerce of power, as I would put it. Poetry has got nothing to do with commerce and power. It's not trying to sell you anything. It's not giving you information. It's inviting you into the garden with Mary Oliver to smell this rose and mm -hmm. to feel the power and the profundity to, of our existence. To share. To share. Not to take away. Exactly. To give us something. Poetry gives. It's not there to entice us to do anything. Or to buy or to sell. Buy, sell, think. 
just be with it. Mm-hmm. And it allows us to be with ourselves in a particular way. And that's the beauty of poetry and the relevance of it as well. You're the poetry man. You make things all right. The Sill Podcast, Perspectives on Art and Technology, is a Connecting Dots Media production. Available at ConnectingDotsMedia.com.